Let's talk about affordable housing, what that really means. And this in light of yesterday's news conference in Vancouver. We are chatting with Housing Minister Ravi Kalon after the role model was uh, presented, what could be a template for other projects around uh, Greater Vancouver and uh, even the rest of the province. This one on the Broadway Corridor, this one involving, well, like uh, 200 affordable housing units, uh, about 50 or so below market value. Ravi Callan, thanks so much for being with us. Got to ask, what does this really mean? What are we looking at? Well, you know, the, the, the prices can be up to, you know, $2,000. I think the, these units are going for, I believe, around $1,900 to $800. And so there's a, a big range in, in what those units go for. But that's considerably lower than um, most people are paying uh, for new rentals. So, uh, you know, it, again, this is, this is 258 units. Uh, it's not you know, going to solve the entire housing crisis, but it's important because, we, this program that we initiated has these units in Vancouver. There's a second one that we did uh, two weeks ago, uh, the first project in Quicklum, which is over 300 units. And, uh, and our hope is that we continue to be able to roll out more of these types of programs in communities throughout the province. You know, Minister, there are people that say that this is going to be a drop in the bucket. Let's uh, look at the Broadway Corridor project first, this one, uh, the West Broadway and Birch one that we've been talking about. And we're looking at, uh, as you say, about 200 affordable units, uh, some 58 below market value. But the average person in Vancouver makes about $55,000 a year, according to statistics, person, not family. Now, is affordability really a pipe dream at that? Or are we able to bring rent in these areas to a place where people making 55000 can't afford it? Well, you know, the, the truth is that this is going to be a challenge. This is, uh, Bruce, two decades in the making. I mean, if you go back to count all the units that could have been built if the province and the federal government continued to invest in housing uh, and stopped over the last, let's say, 20 years, you can pretty much make the total of how much we're short right now. And so, uh, you know, we're paying the price. As I say, the chickens have come home to roost. Uh, what we need to do is wrap up our investments, and it's going to take a few years. Uh, that's just the reality of it. We know it takes three, four, five, some communities up to eight years to get housing built, which is a whole different uh, uh, topic and probably another episode uh, on your on your show. But what we need to do is we need to put these investments in. We need to just start chipping away at it, and we need some larger reforms as well. This fall, uh, we're going to be bringing uh, legislation to allow uh, up to four units on larger single-family lots. We know that'll significantly increase supply. We're going to take steps to allow secondary suites. That will increase the, the amount of supply. And then we're going to use government lands to build affordable housing uh, throughout the province. And, and that will truly be able to create affordability for people because the land question is, is the real challenge for why the rents get continue to go up. If this project, the Jameson project that you partnered with uh, the developer, Jameson, if this project is the template, uh, what are we looking at for the way people are going to live in affordable units? Uh, Are we talking about really small units? Uh, What is kind of like the mix between studio, one, two, three bedroom uh, units? uh, And can you raise a family there? 
Well, you know, you, you actually nailed it. This building actually is one. It's got two bedrooms. It's got three bedrooms. It's got a couple four bedrooms as well. And, you know, part of the work we're doing in the Housing Supply Act is getting away from just the idea of units. Because, you know, if you say just units, all you're going to get is one bedroom. And it's too hard for families to be able to raise a family or grow a family uh, in all one-bedroom suites. In fact, it's impossible. And so uh, what we're doing in part of the Housing Supply Act is going to the first 10 communities that we've uh, identified and saying, okay, here's the amount of one-bedrooms, amount of two-bedrooms, amount of three-bedrooms, the amount of low-cost housing, the affordable housing targets that you need to reach. And so really expanding the type of units, not just focusing on the unit in itself. What are you hearing? What is it that cities want from the provincial government in your mind? Well, I think cities uh, want uh, a uh, partnership. Um, you know, uh, there's, uh, of course, there's infrastructure needs in our communities. You know, I, I was just reminding my colleagues at Metro Vancouver yesterday that uh, we invested half a billion dollars uh, in supporting them with TransLink, which is uh, their responsibility. But just because they were facing cost pressures uh, coming out of the pandemic, uh, we were able to support them. $240 million for a water treatment facility, a billion dollars that went directly to them so that they can decide what infrastructure needs that they have in their communities. Uh, investments in schools, another expansion in the hospital in, in Surrey yesterday was announced. And so we're going to make those investments. But my point to them was, let's do that, but then let's build this housing and do it faster than we've been doing now. There are way too many young people in our, in our communities that are, are right now deciding whether they should stay in BC or whether they should leave. And, uh, and if we don't take this moment in, in, in our history, collective history, and step up and build housing much faster, we may lose an entire generation uh, uh, to other provinces. And that is unacceptable to me. It's unacceptable to the Premier. And, you know, quite frankly, all the mayors I've spoken to, it's unacceptable to them as well. So I do believe that we have now a coalition uh, amongst local governments, provincial and even federal. Uh, and uh, now the question is, how do we drive that to get the success we want to see? And Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Having a conversation with BC Housing Minister Ravi Kalon, and I was, you know, suitably impressed that we're recognizing this as a real issue. And that is the loss of a generation of people who will be leaving BC, not just Vancouver, not just Victoria or Kelowna or Kamloops, but uh, all parts of the province, because you know what? They cannot afford to live here. And yes, it is expensive in other places, but really, when we're talking about BC, affordability is the number one issue. We're talking with Ravi Kellon. Ravi, uh, are we overlooking another reality? People still need to live close to where they work and may not be able to afford to do that. Well, I wouldn't say it's overlooked, Bruce. I would say that it's just part of the, of the mix. And, and the truth is, uh, the nature of employment has been changing. It's changing very fast. We're seeing more and more people shifting to work at home. Uh, and so the, 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 the traditional commutes are changing. The traffic patterns are starting to change. And so we need to change with it. No doubt about it, transit needs to continue to be expanded. Uh, you know, especially when you talk about transit in Surrey, it's, it's a loaded conversation, Bruce. And that, again, is another show, given that uh, there's been many tr changes in direction of where transit infrastructure funding should go. But I know right now that TransLink is having a conversation about what is the future 
expansion of their transit system look like? Uh, and what we've said to them is, hey, we're there. We've been partners already with the SkyTrain expansion, um, and, uh, and we'll be there too once you've uh, identified where your priorities will be. What are we doing to kind of get people thinking about building other jobs, not just work from home, but other jobs in communities so they can live right next to where they work or pretty close to where they work? Well, it's already happening, uh, Bruce. When we see where the new investments are coming, uh, certainly we've seen historic levels of investment We've got the strongest economy in the country. This is why people are coming in record numbers. Uh, and, and with that, when these investment decisions are being made, they're made, being made with where's their availability in land, which, of course, it's a, it's a challenge because there's a shortage of it. But a lot of these investments are happening out in the Fraser Valley. They're happening in, uh, in, in Richmond. They're happening out in Mission. And so uh, the, the, the employers are making financial decisions to invest in those areas. We just need to make sure that uh, we can continue to build the housing and the infrastructure around them to support it. And, you know, it is happening uh, as much as um, uh, I hear sometimes from folks who don't want to see any housing uh, that, you know, what about this? What about that? What about, we're doing it. All these things are happening. But we have people here right now, Bruce, and this is not uh, about, you know, welcoming, creating space for all the people that might come in the future. This is about building housing for the people that are already here who are struggling to find a place. And, and again, I feel an urgency every day since I've gotten the job to, to get the results we want to see. And, uh, and I'm feeling very actually hopeful because of the conversation I've been having with local government. Are we living in a pipe dream if we kind of think about uh, the traditional home being a house, a single detached home with a piece of land, something that was an ocean when I grew up? Is that something that we have to get away from in BC anywhere in the province? I would say that if if you can afford it and you want it, that is still your dream and you can still have it. Uh, you know, this is not a, a war on the single family homes in any way. Uh, they will continue to exist. They will continue to be built as long as people can afford them. But what this is, Bruce, is that this is about making sure that we're creating the type of housing that a new generation can afford. And right now, what we hear too often is when an expensive home, an expensive neighborhood comes down, what happens is there's a three, $4 million home that gets built on it. And it's simply unaffordable for young families. And we have a, a lot of communities in Metro Vancouver in particular where they're losing their young people. Their school enrollments are dropping. It's because people can't afford to live there. And, and, that, and that's, that does not help create vibrant and healthy communities. And that's essentially what we all want. Question I always like, and Ravi Kellan, I think uh, this is one that can apply to you as a housing minister. Who's doing it right in the world? Where do you get inspiration from? Well, you know, uh, we've been learning from a lot of jurisdictions. You know, I've been talking to colleagues across the country. Believe it or not, every province is looking into BC. You know, the message I hear loud and clear, and mayors heard it at the FCM, is that BC is leading as far as policy, as, as far as pushing the agenda to get the housing built. Now, we look to uh, California to, to learn about what they're doing because their challenges are uh, six years, seven years from now uh, for us if we don't do something drastic. So, you know, if you want to look into the future of where, where the challenges might be and what might be coming, look at California and then look at what they're starting to do to course correct. And what we're trying to do is learn from them, learn from New Zealand. A lot of the policy pieces that we're doing, learn from Europe, you know, the, the things that are happening in Finland, uh, the, the, uh, the, the type of rental housing that's in Vienna, 
what Singapore is doing around digital reforms and building affordable housing. There is great examples all over the world, uh, and we are constantly looking and learning uh, not only from those jurisdictions, but also people here in our communities who have great ideas, and a lot of those ideas are what we put in our Homes for People plan. If the NDP was to stay in power for years and you were to stay in this portfolio for years, by what year do you think that you could claim a success when it comes to housing in B.C.? Well, uh, if I were to be in this role for many more years, I, uh, my beard will completely be gray and my hair will be completely gray, Bruce. Uh, because this is a really challenging file. And, uh, and you know, I say to folks all the time, it took us 20 years of not making investments to get here. There's no way in one or two years we're going to fix this challenge. But we have to start making a difference. That's why we've allocated $4.3 billion over the next three years, largest investment in Canada's history uh, from any province. Uh, and we have a lot more work to do. And so uh, for me, Bruce, I, I uh, learned from sport a long time ago that you don't worry about the score at the end. You worry about the process and in in being in the moment and make sure that every step we're taking is uh, taking us to the goal we want, which is uh, the ability for young people to have affordable housing here, the ability for seniors to have their kids and grandkids grow up in the same neighborhood. <laughs> And it is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Well, that big announcement yesterday, and no surprise that this was going to be a big announcement. The heat is being turned up on the NDP government and certainly Health Minister Adrian Dix, along with the Fraser Health Authority. But this is a real problem. We're talking about, of course, Surrey Memorial Hospital. Now, the minister had, and talking with Keith Baldry, we figured about 16 hours of talks with those doctors and other healthcare professionals who work across all different departments at Surrey Memorial, expressing those concerns and often doing them in a very public way because they're frustrated. They say the congestion is causing huge problems, and at times those problems are leave, even leading to a loss of life. That is something we don't want to hear, and we certainly don't want to hear it in an area where we have a very fast-growing city that only has, really, when you talk about it, one hospital serving it right now. Yeah, there's Peace Arch, which is across the street from Surrey, and then there are surrounding area hospitals, but it is Surrey Memorial, at least until the new hospital is brought online. So, yesterday's announcement, there will be an expansion of services at Surrey Memorial, an immediate focus on a new contract for the hospitalists, along with the hiring of more staff for the emergency department and for the maternity ward and for mental health services. Perhaps it's a start. Let's bring in Dr. Berinder Narang again, family physician and CKNW Global News medical contributor. Doctor, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, good morning, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Is this the type of announcement that we were looking for? And when I say we, I'm talking about your colleagues that work over at Surrey Memorial. Um, yeah, uh, I, w- there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. And I think that that's um, indicative of the complexity that is facing the population of Surrey. And we, if you look at the list of announcements yesterday, there's a lot. There's a lot there. There's short-term goals. There's uh, medium-term goals. I haven't had a chance to connect directly with any of my colleagues there. Um, but it does seem to cover... Um, and at least have a, um, 
address and a plan in place to address some of the biggest issues that have been identified uh, by the, the the different departments that I've been um, hearing from and that you've been hearing from these last few weeks. Until very recently, I always had a great deal of confidence in Surrey Memorial because my experience is actually with uh, Surrey Memorial ever since I moved to the area uh, have been really quite positive. And then I started to hear these stories and these concerns in the last couple years. Am I wrong with that? Or was this kind of like uh, something that was brewing all along? And uh, finally, you know, we just tipped over the edge. Um. Probably a bit of both. I think that uh, a, what you're describing, uh, to me, highlights uh, the resilience of the workforce that is delivering the care there. Um, and knowing that this is not um, issues about individuals that are working within the system. And I think that's from a patient experience, um, whether you're seeing uh, the person checking you in or the nurse or the physician or you know the care aide or the porter, that people there are there for a reason and they're trying to do the best they can. I think what we did notice is that some of these population level factors um, uh, compounded with uh, uh, increasing complexity in the population and uh, the impact on the workforce from COVID and financial pressures of living, um, heat, you know, and other environmental issues, um, and a collective um, distress that's been building for a long time. Um, that probably is what we get reached this boiling point, um, which is why it's been so front and center recently. What does it take for doctors and for medical staff to actually? put aside some of their professional responsibilities and taking care of people, but speak out publicly. Have they always been political? I'm not talking about the associations. We know that. Um, But I'm talking about doctors. That's not something that uh, is really all that common, is it? Uh, No, definitely not. And I think that we're uh, not not trained to be political and uh, we're not trained um, to really a lot of time advocate for ourselves. And I think that's something internally within the medical culture we need to address, whether you're uh, a pre-med or a medical student or a resident or a junior staff. You know, part of it is uh, you, you show up, you do the work, and there's this hierarchy that and power structure that you're working within. And um, so in a lot of ways, there is some toxicity within the culture of if you do, you know, step out of line, um, there will be reprimands there. So I think it definitely took a lot. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because um, what this really represents to me, we look at some of the biggest crises within care delivery. There was a family practice crisis last year. Um, and now this, um, all these events here at Surrey Memorial. And what did it take? Like, that's the question. What did it take for, you know, all these family physicians and patients to show up at the legislature last year? Um, and what did it take um, for these intense level meetings that happened over the last week. And to me, that represents what is a, what is the culture, the governance and government um, and administrative lead in this that pushes people to the brink of entering these spaces that they're not comfortable in, they don't want to be in, and they're not, um, you know, probably the best prepared to engage in. But that level of dis- there, um, to get out there in front of cameras, in front of, uh, you know, speaking actively and really doing what they can because they're not work. They're they're all doing this through a sense of 
I want to be able to provide the best care for my patient, but I can't keep working in a place that doesn't allow me to do that. Doctor, an observation from my end, and I don't know if this is right or wrong because it's just an observation, but it seems like the hospital is almost the last place of resort when you start to have a medical system that is falling apart or at least challenged, and everything is interconnected, whether it's the ambulance service or you're uh, going to your general practitioner, your walking clinic. But when you see a fast-growing area like Surrey, and I know this, if you have a problem on a weekend, try getting in to see a doctor. It's impossible. Yeah. And if it, you it are a be... parent, even with a kid, uh, that, and the kid's got a high fever, and you start to stress out a little bit about it, where are you going to end up? And that's just one area. Is this kind of what we're seeing? I think um, the the part, part that we need to highlight here is um, how are the services that are available connected to each other? And I think that this is where, you know, whether it is middle of the week or middle of the weekend, um, navigating the system has become more increasingly difficult. And I think that as we, you know, this refresh is targeted at the tertiary center of um, Surrey Memorial, but we also, you're absolutely right. How are we looking at that from um, the community perspective of where do I go when this happens? And, you know, where am I being seen at the right place at the right time? And that does require integration with the community um, services with the hospital. And that was, you know, something that they did identify in their uh, immediate actions um, section, which said, you know, utilizing uh, nearby community healthcare services to relieve patient demand at the emergency department. And I think that that really does tie into that. How are we leveraging technology and tools of integration um, and, you know, the uh, appropriate human resources um, to make sure that if I'm a patient with a newborn or an elderly person or someone with a mental health crisis, um, that I know how I can navigate this effectively in a way that I will be treated with respect and given high quality care. I think that is the goal. Um, and I do give kudos to the you know government for stepping up, but we can't keep go having to let it get to this level of despair um, to have um, the physicians and nurses uh, who are leading in this care have an opportunity um, to strategically address these issues. And when you look at this, and they said it yesterday, they said, you know, two days of meetings or something. Within a few days, they were able to hammer out a comprehensive plan that seemingly addresses the concerns of the physicians with timelines in place. So what does that mean? It means that there is an opportunity here for um, shared responsibility, respectful dialogue, and action-oriented outcomes. I would suspect it. Right, but I would suspect it also Mm -hmm. means that there was uh, some word going out, hey, look, we've got to do something very quickly. This is in the public eye, and there may have been this uh, one big news conference, but I guarantee there were a lot of meetings behind closed doors that we never knew about where people were coming up with some sort of plan and some sort of priority and doing it long hours into the night. Absolutely, and that's where we're talking about we can't let it get to a crisis stage. And that's where we talk about what is the culture within the organization um, and healthcare delivery services that allows for I have identified a critical issue and I need to have confidence and um, in my department, in my hospital, in my health authority, that that will be heard. Because I'm not talking about myself here. I'm talking about the patient I'm serving. 
and that there's a that has an actionable um, you know mechanism to change. And I think that's where we really need to promote that in a way that um, you know allows people to have confidence that I'm working in a system that is working for me and for my patients. And Mike is off right now. I'm Bruce Clackett in for him. We've been talking with Dr. Barinder Narang, family physician and CKNW Global News medical contributor, this following yesterday's big announcement about the expansion of services, much-needed expansion of services at Surrey Memorial. Doctor, I want to touch on this because every once in a while, we hear these stories about uh, emergency departments and diversions and understaffing in emergency departments, uh, even leading to patients being in the halls for far too long. Are all emergency rooms in the province created equal, or are some simply better than others? I don't know how to answer that, to be honest. I think uh, when we say created equal, I feel that um, the survey, we look at it from human uh, and resources, like the staff working there, and we look at it, from equipment, from what kind of level of care they can deal with, and then what is the capacity in the hospital and the community to get patients out of the emergency room safely. So I think it, it, it there's never going to be that, kind of, if we look at it from an um, equality point of view, it'll never be equal because every hospital is powered to do different levels of care that can uh, provide, whether it's trauma units, stroke units, and things like that. Um, And so what I do think is, from a qualification perspective, um, there uh, there are standards um, and accreditations and registrations of the physicians and nurses working there that the, the setting that they're working in, they are trained to work in. So from that point of view, the care, the person you're seeing will have that level of training you need um, uh, to feel comfortable that the person taking care of you is there. But it comes down to, again, the resources. And that's why when we're talking about Surrey and um, some of the the issues that they've been trying uh, to address there, when we say two cath labs, that's because if someone has a heart attack um, and they we need to figure, okay, we need to get them into an angio uh, Graham and have a cath lab available. There are time, um, the, um, there are time considerations there where every minute um, you, there's potential loss of blood supply to the muscle of the heart, and so there are targets um, of door to um, cath lab of 90 minutes that are, is recommended. And so it is not um, that the skill isn't there. Often it's a, are we addressing the amount of um, like the type of presentations that we're seeing in our community and then giving them that evidence-informed care. I think that's the crux of how do we kind of meet those needs um, effectively. And when we look at Surrey growing, you know, at a rate of almost 10% yeah. annually, like that is something that we were, it was going in the wrong direction. Well, the question comes up, do we need Surrey to be a regional trauma center, something like Royal Columbian? Well, I I, I would argue yes. Now, I'm not in a health economics person, but to me, it seems logical with the growth. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been really worried when I see the Patello renovations that are going on, knowing that um, congestion and delays can mean very negative outcomes in the right situation, whether we're talking about strokes or heart attacks. 
of people. I'm like, if someone's stuck, they're trying to get from one hospital to another because of congestion from a delay. Like there, you know, there is a river that isolates Surrey from the other big hospitals. Yeah, indeed. And you expand that out to BC, there's uh, topography exactly. and geography all yeah. over the province. Are we going to get a hold of uh, solving some of these issues when it comes to emergency rooms in smaller BC hospitals? Um, I think there will always be unique challenges to those rural and remote settings um, where, you know, we talk about task labs and things like that and renal like dialysis centers and MRIs and interventional radiology. There is not, and this is where we match it with the human resources, there's not an unlimited supply of people who are actually skilled to do this work as well because all the tools that we have, um, whether it's a computer system or um, a surgical equipment, it needs to have that guidance from a highly skilled team, whether that's the technician, whether that's the, the cardiologist or the neurologist or the radiologist. And so it really does tie into that. What is our supply of providers? And um, and also, how are we using those skills in a way that may allow them to not only serve the patient that's physically in front of them, but also help guide the care in other parts of the province? And that's, there's something you may have heard about called the Real-Time Virtual Support um, Program. And that's something through our Rural Coordination Center, BC. And that's really helping to address those those types of issues of leveraging technology to help provide care to traditionally uh, the most under-resourced areas across the province. Thanks for being with us. Bruce Claggett in for Mike. You know, it's been a pretty busy news cycle in the past weekend. You may have missed this story, but it's kind of an important one. As of June 1st, yeah, BC pharmacists are now able to assess patients and even prescribe for 21 minor ailments and even prescribe contraceptives. Of course, in the past, that used to require a visit to the doctor for things like suffering from pink eye to shingles, urinary tract infections, hemorrhoids. All that is a little bit different now, different approach in BC. Let's talk about the whys and how it's, uh, you know, coming down to working in reality now that we're a week in. We talk now with Pindi Jandy, who joins us. Uh, Pindi is the vice president of uh, vice president pharmacist at the BC Pharmacists Association. Let's get that right. Pindi, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Bruce. So let's talk a little bit about this change because it's not a small one, but uh, for many people with these described as minor ailments, but they're also kind of common. Uh, What's going on? What was the need? What are we seeing now? Well, this has been many, many years in the making. Uh, You know, as you know, BC pharmacists are the first line um, who are connecting with patients when they come in to get their prescription. So you see the doctor, but when they're actually taking it home and they're getting their therapy, it is actually with um, through their pharmacist who provides the care. And a lot of pharmacies, as we know, are open late at night, and the pharmacist is the one that's available to them, um, in conjunction, of course, working with nurse practitioners and physicians. So it's I'm very, very excited, as you can tell from my voice. It's been many, many years in the making, and um, we're super, super excited. It started June 1st, and you know what's... And I have some numbers for you. Yeah, let's hear them. So just just on June 1st, the first day 
pharmacists in BC did 1,000 assessments. Wow. 1,000 patients were helped on the very first day. Okay. So, and then it, yeah, and in terms of top five, so the top five was um, allergies and then urinary tract infection, uh, contraception, pink eye, and then dermatitis or any sort of like a skin, like every minor ailment that's been chosen for pharmacists to be able to assess and prescribe on are things that really need immediate use, right? And, and they need immediate care. So it's really challenging to get in to see a physician because as we know, like you said, it's been a very active news cycle speaking about our healthcare system that um, it's been strained. And physicians are, you know, under so much more pressure than they have been before. Well, and, getting, you know, we've been... Yeah, getting right? into seeing and, a and, physician has been extremely difficult, hasn't it? Absolutely. And it's not something that they're doing by choice, Right. I mean, it's just what has, you know, happened over the last three years through the course of the pandemic. And it's almost like, you know, it's a series of events that have all culminated into this situation that we're at now. And um, pharmacists being able to support and being able to, you know, see patients in a timely manner for these 21 different ailments is going to take the burden off of physicians so that they can see patients who may be more complex. Okay, not that I'm a news guy that likes to see the darker side and look for the question about how things are going to work, but I've got to ask uh, this question. Sure. Okay, so now we're cutting down on some of the people going into maybe a walk-in clinic for something that pops up and uh, putting them over to the pharmacist for something that's very, very basic. But I'm now thinking that there might be these huge lines and the same staff dealing with more people and longer interfaces with customers uh, in the stores or the pharmacies where they go to. Uh, were you prepared for that? Is that a reality? And what's being done? Well, they were absolutely prepared. You know, I've spoken with many of my pharmacist colleagues like who, you know, are working full time in the dispensing um, environment. And, you know, pharmacists, we, you know, we hustle, right? Like we're used to being in that situation of, you know, a patient needs to see us right now and we will, we will execute within that 20 minutes or half an hour that's needed. So, and we are, you know, multitaskers. We really have been for, you know, since day one of dispensing. And in terms of, yes, I mean, you know, say on the surface, it would seem like, wow, pharmacists are getting so many more things added to their plate. But it's things that we've actually always done all along. And it's now just completing that last step because we, we've already been trained and are competent in these ailments to know what to prescribe as that first line. Okay, so right? what is your reaction from uh, your members, from pharmacists? Oh, they're so excited. They are so excited. You know, before it launched, so... Um, right before the June 1st launch, we already had 1,400 pharmacies that were ready and able to, to and they're like, yep, bring it on. We want to see these patients. Yeah, and what about so they're doctors? They're very excited. Doctors and you know, nurse practitioners, those you, who, I well, mean, you're taking away some of the work from them. That's good. But uh, are they saying, hey, you know, is there a little bit of tension between their expertise and that of the pharmacists? I don't believe so. You know, I've spoken to some of my farm, um, physician colleagues and, you know, people that I'm lucky enough to call my friends, and they said, no, this is fantastic. Because it, it's always been a collaborative approach between a community pharmacist and the prescribing physician. Because we communicate all the time anyhow, right? And the very first thing that a pharmacist is trained on when we're assessing a patient in general, say someone comes in for cough and cold, 
you go through a series of questions. A pharmacist always knows when to refer. Yeah. And I think, and physicians have that trust in pharmacists the same way we have trust in the physician. It's a very respectful environment. And, you know, all the doctors are like, this is fantastic, Pindi. Because it's not that they don't, the patient is still going to receive the best care possible, right? It's just a matter of, like, I know that word gets used a lot in healthcare, it is triaging. Because the physician is going to be communicated to as to what care was provided to the patient. It's available in a database that physicians have access to. And, and there is a follow-up component to it where the, the pharmacist would know when to refer. So I think absolutely, I think doctors are, are I, I think many, 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 especially in primary care, are quite supportive of this endeavor. I'm looking at uh, the initial list of things, and most of these conditions are things that pop up. They're not ongoing, uh, like pink eye shingles. Uh, as right. you mentioned, the uh, very large number of these visits are urinary tract infections. Are there mm-hmm. any in there that are chronic that uh, pharmacists are able to deal with? There isn't anything that's chronic per se, but what we would, so say with the urinary tract infection, there's, so with any sort of, med, like with any medical condition, there's always your first line therapy. You're like, okay, so here's the symptoms that present and here's what we should be giving. And then you look at the patient for what's going to work best. When you go through that first line, but if there's still complications after that first round of say therapy, that's when you, okay, no further testing is needed or they need to get, um, you know, a further assessment. And in, in terms of seasonal allergies, so allergies, like it's interesting. We think, oh, it's only during allergy season. But patients who suffer from seasonal allergies, it's every single season, yeah. right? So it, it is. Like they're not going away because you're still the same person. If anything, you may get heightened sensitivity the following year. So it does, it's almost it, like it's a seasonal chronic type of condition, like you could say. Thank you for staying with us. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Hope you're able to enjoy some of that sunshine today before, yeah, it turns to possible showers starting tomorrow. Well, then it's going to be back to sunshine and just a few clouds for most areas of the province for Saturday and Sunday. You know, over the past few days, there is one story that really ignited some very strong emotions right across the country. And this comes down to that transfer of convicted killer and serial rapist Paul Bernardo to a medium security prison after 30 years behind bars, not really bars, but 30 years at a maximum security prison. People are angry. And you know, one of the architects of the law that governs our country's prison system says it is understandable that people want revenge on the killer and serial rapist, but you know, it's really not what the prison system is designed for. So that begs the obvious question, what is the prison system designed for? We're talking with Mary Campbell, lawyer and former Director General of Corrections and Criminal Justice uh, with the Department of Public Safety. Mary, thanks so much for being with us. You're the mind behind uh, behind how the system works, one of them. Tell us how that system is supposed to work. Yeah, um, I was at Public Safety, and it was Saul Jen, Solicitor General, uh, before that. So I started there in 1984. Some of your uh, listeners probably weren't even born then. Um, and just uh, on one question there, Paul Bernardo was actually behind bars. I saw him once when he was at Kingston Penitentiary, and he was 
definitely behind bars <laughs> in his cell. Some of those have uh, bars, he, yes. They do have bars. Uh, and in his case, it had a piece of plexiglass because other inmates were throwing nasty things at him. Uh, you know, he spent 30 years in maximum security, which is a very long time. And I don't expect anybody to say, oh, gee, that's too bad. Um, but the way the system is set up is that everyone is treated as having the potential for rehabilitation now. In this case, believe me, I don't expect to ever see him paroled. There is uh, just about no chance of that. But the principle is still there that you try to assess the person's risk and their potential for um, living some kind of decent life. Now, he's gone from max to medium. Uh, if your readers or listeners sorry, haven't been in a penitentiary, there's not a whole lot of difference. He'll have a little more freedom in medium in terms of his daily life, but there's still a concrete wall. There's razor wire. There's everything else. Uh, anyone who's worried about him escaping, um, I can assure you there are more likely things to worry about than that. Uh, you know, I understand people are upset because they feel anyone who's done such horrendous things should be in the worst possible conditions. But, you know, that's just not how we operate a modern system. We've got about 2,500 people serving life sentences, and they're a very mixed group. There are a handful that are the Paul Bernardos. You know, I could probably about a dozen, and so could your listeners. Yeah. Um, but we can't design a whole system for those half dozen people. We've got to have a system that uh, has fundamental principles and has enough flexibility to take care of the really extreme cases. Unfortunately, those are pretty few in number. You're a lawyer. I like words. Lawyers love words. But uh, when it comes to words, uh, we could talk about a correction system or a penal system. We've got a correction system. Penal would be penalty, almost like uh, enforcing some sort of punishment. Is that the case uh, in our country? Yeah, we used to have a, a penal system. I mean, we've got, we had all the uh, weapons of torture. If you're ever in Kingston, Ontario, visit the museum. We've, uh, we've done all that. Uh, the problem is that it doesn't actually work. It doesn't do anything for anyone. Uh, and so we have as many, if not most, Western countries, a more modern system that says, look, the punishment is being locked up. The punishment is being locked up. And I always say, if you want to, if you haven't been to penitentiary, um, you know, lock yourself in your unrenovated bathroom and stay there for 30 years. And, you know, it'll give you some idea of, of what it's like. Uh, I'm really not exaggerating. I've never been in a penitentiary that I regarded as in any way coddling or, or pleasant. The punishment is you are removed from society. Uh, and that's kind of the basis of, uh, of the modern system. Well, I think about BC and even in the Fraser Valley, we've got a uh, maximum security prison, Kent, and then we've got ones that are medium security, like the Matsqui Institution. And I think of Matsqui, and Matsqui is not an an easy uh, uh, an easy penitentiary or an easy uh, prison to live in. I mean, you've got that razor wire, you've got some hardened criminals in there, and I don't think you're going to be getting any uh, free ride if you go there. Is that the case right across the country? 
Yes, I would say so. You know, we've tried to uh, have minimum security penitentiaries that are uh, a little bit less with the razor wire, because if someone goes down to minimum, you know, the expectation is that they have the potential to be paroled. But, you know, someone who's serving life, they've got no guaranteed release date whatsoever. They're like Mr. Bernardo. He's eligible for parole. He's been to the parole board and they in no uncertain terms said, no, you're not going anywhere. Um, These are, uh, you know, if people want to visit a penitentiary and and do it the right way, not the wrong way, um, you know, check with your local John Howard or E. Fry uh, to go and have a look or uh, apply to attend a parole hearing because they're conducted inside the penitentiaries. It's a real reality check to see what uh, what goes on in there. Um, there's nothing there is nothing pleasant about them. The you know the the lifer population you know the roughly 2,500 people boy that's a real mixed bag of people. And as I say, the Bernardos of the world, Clifford Olson, uh, Willie Pipton. You know you can practically name the high profile ones. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, as I mentioned, uh, I've been out to Matsqui uh, and I've actually yeah. attended parole board hearings, but uh, mm. Matsqui is no picnic. But the one no. thing that I come away with is this question, if you have a Matsqui or a medium security prison, is there any need to continue on outside of uh, public image with the idea of having the maximum security prisons? Or could there be like two different prisons, one that's minimum, one that's the rest? Um, it's possible, but there is a, a, a distinction between max and medium in, in terms of your daily movement. If you're in max, you're pretty much in that cell with bars on the door, uh, you know, uh, not 24-7, but pretty close to it. And medium is, you know, a, a sort of a, a slight step down because the idea is you can hopefully find a path to living like a... Uh, you know, a law-abiding person. Now, we do have penitentiaries that are multi-level. So within the one penitentiary, yes, you will have the different uh, different levels. And that's, uh, that's becoming more common just for efficiency's sake, is to have those uh, security levels kind of co-located. But they don't mix. The populations do not mix together. In this country, do we, do we still have the whole? I mean, the place oh, you go oh, when yeah. you've been really bad in prison? Oh, yes, I've been to the hole. Um, you know, we call it something else now. We called it segregation for quite a while, and now we call it uh, SIU, which I uh, always struggle to remember, Structured Intervention Unit. Of course. That's such a nice name, eh? It's like, I always like it when they call uh, penitentiaries the reception center, and you think you're going to get, you know, a glass of champagne. Um, yeah, the Structured Intervention Unit is segregation, but again, it's it's quite removed from what we would call the whole from, you know, yeah. uh, the 1800s. Just because as a society, we know that's not the route to go. As I say, we, we did torture. Boy, you want to see torture? We did it, you know. Um, and most countries have moved far away from that. Absolutely. Mary Campbell, thanks so much for shedding some light on what the system actually looks like and uh, taking this topic on. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much.